You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Coming up on the roundup, a first look at the Brothers' War. Then on the brew session, new decks with Tolarian Terror. Finally, on the flashback, testing results with Maria, Scholar of Antiquity. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan Online. Joined today by my guy in Argentina, it's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey, how's it going, Dan? That was a beautiful voice. That was like pretty much commentator style voice. Everything going great around here, just enjoying the new day of magic, looking at the beautiful new spoilers. And getting ready for a nice episode. How about you? Yeah, not much. Trying to get up to speed on these early Brothers War previews. Someone had asked me, speaking of the voice in our Discord, they said, your voice sounded so familiar. Did you do any professional voice work? And I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. But you might be thinking of like Elf. I've been told I sound somewhat like Elf or Mr. Ed. So if you want to think about that, you know, that could be what you're imagining. I mean, I have heard your voice so much that it wouldn't surprise me hearing it from somewhere else. Like... In- intrusive thoughts? Just like. Yeah, yeah, just being hanging around and hear them saying, What are you saying, Mord? Amy, where is that going? <laughs> so disregarding your beautiful voice and your future in voice acting, we have great news. We're recording... Literally, minutes after a whole set of beautiful cards have been spoiled. It's previous season again, maybe. <laughs> previous season? I missed it. Previous season ended 48 hours ago with the last card in Infinity on September 27th. The previous previous season ended on September 24th with the end of the release of Warhammer. So clearly 48 hours is all the time we need for the new previous season with Dominar, with the Brothers War. I can't even say the name of the set. It's so many sets. Brothers were united. Let's go. Or MTG Bro. As I will only refer to it as from now on. Is that, is that a joke? Is that actually what they're codenaming this? That's actually the name. You go on Twitter, search MTG Bro, and it's the official tweets by Wizards. Wow. It's hashtag MTG Bro. <laughs> okay. That's, so that's the only way I will refer to this set from now on. Let's bro out. Let's do it. I gotta say it once, just to let them see what a mistake they've made by choosing this code name. Looks like we got five, six new cards. These are generally not like the highlights of the set, but they're flavorful, so we can get a, a feel of what's going on in the Brothers' War. A feel of how it's going, two cards that are at least interesting in my eyes, and a few beautiful standard fluff. So I understand this set is going back in time, back to the days of your 
Urza Mithra in the flesh. Yeah, so sets are not chronological in release. So this isn't like... The fact you're in a set in the past does not mean we're time-traveling. It's just showing facts that we haven't been shown before. For example, Battlebone was released before Eldrain, but in Eldrain is where the brothers that are in the Battlebone set actually got their spark. So just because it's released later in time doesn't mean it's later in the plotline. It's not like we're traveling back in there. It's just that they're showing us facts that happened before in a later set. Magic is not released in chronological order to itself. So we're not time traveling, we're reading the news. <laughs> like we're reading a really old encyclopedia. If that makes some degree of sense. I mean, at this point, the sets that these cards call back to are like 29, 30 years old. So. Yeah, yeah, they're much older than me. Like I'm looking at this first card here called the Mightstone and Weakstone. And yeah, there is a card called Mightstone and a card called Weakstone. They're both in the Antiqu- Antiquities expansion. Oh, exactly, yeah. So when I first looked at the, at the card and mentioned them, I was like, wait, the Mightstone and Weakstone are getting reprinted? And all of a sudden I see the next spoiler, the Mightstone and Weakstone as the same card. Just called the Mightstone and Weakstone. Mightstone, not to be confused with Meekstone, nor Weakstone. <laughs> but Weakstone, you should at least look up the art for the original Weakstone. It's... It's very, very funny. It's this little dog-like creature, but it's very cartoonish and is kind of trembling. Oh, damn. <laughs> like, the weak stone is got it in its orbit. Like, the weak stone is the rock, right? I don't know. I mean, all I think of is a dog. So, like, I'm looking at the new artwork for this newfangled weak stone, and there's no dog. So, this is not canonical. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a green... It's the green shem. Look at the new art. It's like a green shem and a red one. Not for me. If there's no dog in it, this card is not for me. And the Mightstone, which was like a clenched feast, clearly what the Mightstone is, is the rock inside the feast and not the feast itself. They should at least give that dog its own card in this. That's an iconic dog. Like It looks like almost like one of those doge meme dogs that you'll find on Twitter. <laughs> Like the swole dog and the and the weak stone dog. If I'm not mistaken, the mixed stone is what fires up every single part, every single thing of the like. The mixed stone is what get the whole saga started. Oh, I don't know actually. Mishra finds the mixed stone. Ursa finds the might stone, and it's that that gives it the opposing four that leads to the war. And like they fight them in the cave of Koilos, the Orso Painland. Interesting. Man, you're up on all this lore. That's great. I mean, I, I gotta read when I'm bored. <laughs> I have nothing to do when I'm bored. And lore, even if... Like, the lore in Magic tends to be consistently poorly written, but good concepts. Like, the ideas are good, just the dialogue and the specifics are not quite. So reading summaries is actually a pretty good way and enjoyable way to find about it. All right, I'm going to read this card, the Mightstone and Weakstone. Yes. Five mana, legendary artifact... Power Stone. Legendary Artifact Power Stone. New subtype of artifacts. Yeah, from the previous set, right? There were Power Stone tokens, but, I mean, they didn't really matter. This, to me, tells me that these will matter, hopefully. Yeah. Power Stone Shard is incredibly not a Power Stone. For now. 
And it specifically needs other cards named Power Stone Shard, not just other Power Stones. No, no, but I was checking if it at least had like the type line added to it, but it doesn't. No, that's just a shard. I- I'm not going to go dig deep into if there's any creature that's like half an angel and still an angel, <laughs> but I'm sure that I'm right. All right, when the Mightstone and Weakstone enters the battlefield, choose one. Either draw two cards, that's the Mightstone, I suppose, or target creature gets minus five, minus five until end of turn. That's the Weakstone. Poor dog. In addition to that ETB effect, either draw two or kill something, you also get to tap the Mightstone and Weakstone for two colorless mana. Mana that can't be spent to cast non-artifact spells. Okay, that's the similar restriction that we saw on Karn Living Legacy for his Power Stones. And can you read the beautiful last line? (laughs) Is this flavor text? I mean, I see some italics. No, no, that's not flavor text. Melds with Urza Lord Protector. Melds. You know what Mel is, right? From the good old original Innistrad... With the garrison, the angels, and the rats? That was from uh, Eldritch Moon, I believe. That's Sam Innistrad. That was when Emrakul was corrupting yeah, okay. the plane and causing things to meld into each other. Exactly. So Mel is back. Yeah, oh boy. What a mistake. <laughs> this, is, this feels like a mistake. I don't know. A mechanic that hasn't been seen in at least 10 years, back once again. And that means we have to read the card in Bell's Suite. Did anyone enjoy melds? Serious question. I don't know if I've never melded. And you probably never will. I mean, okay. <laughs> well, let's take a look at Urza and then decide if we will ever meld. That sounded like an insult, even if <laughs> even if it makes no sense, and you never will meld, sounds like an insult. No, I'm not insulting you. I'm <laughs> insulting whoever put meld into this set. I know, no, I'm laughing at the fact it makes no sense, but it's still like, and you shall never meld again. So, Ursa Lord Protector, legendary creature, human artificer for a one, a white and a blue, so three mana, three mana, two, four. Artifact, instant, and sorcery spells you, could, you cast cost one less to cast. So, it's like a baral for artifact, instant, and sorceries. And if you both own and control Ursa Lord Protector and an artifact named the Mightstone and Wickstone, you might exile them both and meld them into Ursa Planeswalker. Activate only as a sorcery. So you gotta cast your three mana creature, pay your four mana with the cost reduction for your Mixstone and Mightstone, and now that you have seven mana due to the fact that you play your fifth land drop and the Mixstone and Mightstone tap for two mana, you can go turn three Ursa, turn four Mixstone and Mixstone, turn five, meld them into Ursa Planeswalker. So huge investment. This payoff had better be amazing. If I flip over to the backside, Ursa Planeswalker is just huge planeswalker he takes two cards to assemble her as a planeswalker it takes two cards and a total amount of 15 mana 15 mana yeah so i don't even think we need to read all these abilities because it's like a preposterous set of stuff it's five abilities and static text that says you may activate urza planeswalker's loyalty twice per turn instead of once so you get like unlimited abilities yeah the thing is it's just a buffet the card is insanely expensive to get, but once you look at the abilities, I don't think it's going to be playable, but Artifact Instant and Sorcery Spell you cast this turn costs two less to cast, and you can use that twice, 
means you get a minus four cost on all your instant sorceries and artifacts. So your second copy of Mighty Stone and Weak Stone only costs one and draws you two cards. But it's legendary, so. I mean, if you use an Ursa, if you flip an Ursa Blainswalker with that plus two, you're likely winning the game the next turn if that turn if your deck is built around that. But you're not getting fifteen mana consistently. You're just winning the game casting fifteen mana and Rakul. I mean, so to me, this is just a preposterous notion that we would ever try this. <laughs> you think that? But I'm already looking for rules because I know this is going to win a monthly project. So, while you try to cower in fear, I'm embracing the fact our patrons hate us. They're <laughs> going to make us win with Ursa Blazewalker. So, Earth Lord Protector, 3 mana, 2 4 with static text, that's sort of okay. It's not great, it's not as good as an ETB. Nope. Honestly, cost reduction on 3 drops is, does not have a good track record. Never did, never will. If you already played a 3-drop, you better be doing something decent, not setting up for next turn. The fact that you have to pay 7 to flip reminds us of Nicole Bullis the Ravager, but that is a 1-card combo. Urza, you need to also have this really clunky 5-mana legendary power stone. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it would be fun to do this in Commander, I guess. Maybe that's the point. I mean... This is a standard legal set with some commander cards. We can't always expect most cards to be more than playable. Let's remind ourselves of how Dominaria United started with zero playables. Evolve Sleeper. They showed us Evolve Sleeper and Lanowar Loam Speaker on day one. Yeah, yeah. There's actually something. I have never seen a, a Loam Speaker yet. Uh, they show up in Jeskai Ascendancy and Pioneer. Nothing special. So, ignoring the Ursa that we are never going to play around until forced, what do we have next? Looks like we have a Boros legendary called Queen Kayla Bin Krug. One red, white. That's three mana total for a legendary human noble. Two, three. All she has is an activated ability. Her activated ability is four and tap, so... Big investment here, again, this is probably not a serious constructed card unless the ability is completely amazing <laughs> and it kind of is but you have to cast kayla she has to survive a turn you got to put four more mana into her it's, it's going to be too much that being said the ability is sweet the ability is four and tap discard all the cards in your hand then draw that many so you loot your entire hand away but then you look through the cards you discarded and you get to put some of them back into play you choose an artifact or creature card with cmc one then do the same thing for artifacts or creatures at CMC 2 or 3 of the cards you discarded. They just get to come back to the battlefield. So it's kind of like a weird ramp reanimation card draw. Like, it's it's wild. So if you manage to get it off and you actually have some cards in hand, it's insane. Problem is it requires not only your 3-drop to survive, but also having at least a 2-drop and a 3-drop in your hand. Actually, a one drop and a three drop or a one drop and a two drop also work because you draw two cards. Because you put your two creatures into play. Like, let's say you have four cards in hand, two of them are creatures, two of them are X, I don't care about. You activate this and you end up with four cards in hand and two extra creatures on board. So it's not only a ramp spell, it's a draw spell, right? Mm hmm. That's actually pretty powerful if you can get that consistently. Because she's human, you know, you could put her into like a. Humans Company or Ether Vile deck and 
it's not out of the question that you would activate her, but I think other cards probably just take those slots better. Hmm. All right, next up is a card that is a lot easier to put into decks because it's a land. And it's like Mistra's Factory at home. <laughs> Mistra's Foundry. Tap, make a colorless mana, enter some tapped colorless land, pay two, and it becomes a 2 2 assembly worker artifact creature. And you may pay one and a tap, target attacking assembly worker gets plus two plus two. This can get really out of hand with like a Mistra's Factory, right? We just get it like 6 6 extremely fast with a few of these and itself. No. <laughs> Don't try that. Why not? Just play a colorless deck with eight of them? Using six lands and all you did for your six mana was attack with one of your lands, which can then die? Trust me. A standard legal set. I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. This is basically Mistress Factory, which is now legal in modern, except that instead of being one to activate, it's two to activate, so it's unplayable on that front. And then they took away the defensive ability, like Mistress Factory blocks the 3-3. This one does not. In fact, it can only pump like a different assembly worker, because presumably if you want to attack with it, it's already tapped. So it's like, yeah, it's just like a weak mutavolt for standard. Yeah. Weak mutavolt. Can we just... What if we play four mutavolts for, um, for Foundry 4? I'm, I'm about to make bad decisions, sorry everybody. Catch Talk to me in a month. Talk to me six, um, November 16th for my ideas regarding... 816 Manland deck. So I think you could consider that for Pioneer. However, where is the power coming from? Like, both Mutavolt and Mishra's Foundry are not powerful cards. So, I mean, it's weird to say that, but, like, <laughs> it's just not that good anymore compared to, like, Down of the Bugbear. So, there would need to be something else, like something that actually synergizes with colorless creatures or something, and then you have, like, these eight lands that fit into that or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a weak card, but I just love color I just love entrant up manlands. What can I say? Squeezing value of every spot I can. Yeah, that is sweet. So following that we have two last spoilers. One of them I actually quite like and one of them I don't care about. Which one is your take then? Well let's stick with the artifact theme since this is Urza and Mishra. Surge Engine. This is Figure of Destiny, but in blue? Yeah. A blue Figure of Destiny is apparently an artifact creature construct that costs <laughs> two mana and has Defender. Surge Engine. Two mana, three, two, Defender. Activated a bunch of times to get bonuses. You can kind of think of this as leveling up. The first activation is one blue mana to... Give the Surge Engine the text, loses Defender, and can no longer be blocked. So now, instead of a wall, you have an unblockable 3-2. If you pay 2 and a blue, Surge Engine now becomes blue. Its base power and toughness goes up to 5-4. And you can only do this if you've already removed the Defender. Essentially, if you've already activated the first clause. The last clause is 4 blue-blue, draw 3 cards, activate only if Surge Engine is blue and only once. So in theory, you're going through the entire progression, but you know if you somehow made it blue some other way, uh, mm. you, you could just skip directly to paying six to draw three cards. I mean, you have the three mana... What's the name of the creature everybody loves? The one that taps creatures for colorless mana and makes creatures blue. 
The one from Blue Steel. Oh, Grand Architect. Yes. Gives you mana and makes it blue. If you are going to have some really bad ideas. All right. From there. All right, fine. You got me. <laughs> I'll try it. Yes. <laughs> it sucks, but I'll try it. It's Grand Architect. This is the perfect card for Blue Steel. I love Grand Architect. That would be a sweet card to have in Pioneer. See? Got you. And finally, we have Recruitment Officer. One mana 2-1, uncommon human soldier, with no text besides an activated ability for 4 mana. So Savannah Lion that reads, look at the top 4 cards of your library, sorry, pay 4 mana, 3 and a white. Look at the top 4 cards of your library, you may reveal a creature card with CMC 3 or less from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest of your bottom in, in of the put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. So just a one mana small card advantage dork. Two on a human for one. And it grinds a little bit. That's okay. If Duskwatch Recruiter did not exist, I would be like, oh, this is so exciting. But we've all tried Duskwatch Recruiter and it's not that good, so <laughs> this costs even more. It has to contribute to the team just by virtue of being a one-drop, I think. Yeah, I don't think it's great. I just love one-drops with text. Finally, after that, we get We get a lot of cards, old cards like Wurnkolenge, some old cards like Ivory Tower and such, and Wurnkolenge in an old foil with like the crafting around them. I don't know. They look super cool. Classic artwork, but old frame. That's good. Yeah. What are these special ones? It's like what are these special ones. It's like a Da Vinci's notebook sort of like diagram of how like it goes developing. Huh. Like if you open it, it big, it actually looks quite well. It's like the sketchings of the creature or or like the artifact, like the blueprint. So there are some cards where from time to time, like a new promo will come out of the card, and it will have new art, and people will say, "Oh yes, love the new art." That's fine. There are other cards where the artwork is so iconic, in my opinion, that like I would never want to see a different artwork on the card. <laughs> Worm Coil Engine is one of those cards. Like I hope they just never change the artwork. And I'm happy that this Da Vinci alternate promo just basically keeps the same artwork and sketch form. Yeah, it's the same artwork, just looking at it at a different perspective, right? Like I actually quite like that, that it's the same. Like They took the one that everybody knows about. And just made it like sketchy. Sketchy like a sketch way, not in a weird way. Yeah, not like the MH2 showcases. This is a little more beautiful than that. Yeah. And finally, I only added this because I wanted to stop discussing about the topic. I know I knew I was right for a while, but I have never seen better evidence. People complain about Street of New Capena or Futuristic or stuff like Warhammer not really fitting in the Magic Universe. And here I provide you 10 lands with mechs in standard. <laughs> Not only mechs, but mechs that would perfectly fit in Pacific Rim, or maybe something even more advanced and alien than that. And these are based on Brothers Wars, which is literally 93. So everybody that keeps saying that mechs and Sarge are not fitting in Mashik, they have been here longer than I have been on Earth. They were an embarrassment back then, and they still are now. I stand by that. I'm sorry. I'm just showing proof of my facts. You can say they were an embarrassment, of course, but they existed. Power armor. I'm still mad about power armor. I, can, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I think that's what these pictures are. Like the island with some hulking machine. That's Urza wearing power armor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know the art. That's literally the power armor. See, guys, <laughs> that's what you get. Oh, boy. You thought New Capena was mech like? <laughs> this is the new one. But yeah, that's all we have on MTG Bro. At least for now. Likely spoilers, I think, are starting in two weeks and we get the full on release on November 15 on MTGO and pre release on November 11. They are once again back to doing pre release first, MTGO later. They are literally, like, randomly swapping it around. So about five and a half weeks before we're playing with these cards online. Yeah. Okay. It's a decent time frame. Someone just sent this literal lance in my in my MTG LCS friend group and people are complaining they look too new and I'm about to have the debate of my lifetime in an hour. <laughs> I'm going to have so much fun. Well, while Amort is gearing up for that, uh, we will proceed with our program for the rest of this show. Which is two things. We want to take a look at a new card. So we're going to brew a little bit with Tolerian Terror. Woo! And we want to follow up on some testing that we did with Maria Scholar of Antiquity. Yeah, today's episode was going to focus on that, but seeing the releases literally an hour ago was just something we couldn't even hold ourselves back from. All right, Tolerian Terror, six and a blue creature, serpent. 5-5 five, five with Ward 2. Thank you. This spell costs <laughs> one less to cast for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. Extremely simple card. Yeah. In a way, there's almost nothing special happening here. But there's beauty in simplicity, right? There's beauty in a 3-mana 10-10. And there's beauty in a 1-mana 5-5. Five, five. Two comparisons come to mind. The first is Gurmag Angler, which has regular delve, is 6 and a black for a 5-5 zombie fish, does not have ward, and is agnostic on what type of stuff you feed to it. So, you know, Gurmag Angler used to be a card that Grixis Shadow might play just as a cheap one-mana threat. The other comparison is Cryptic Serpent, which has the same cost reduction text. So it specifically costs one less to cast for each instant and sorcery card in the graveyard cryptic serpent is almost good enough but it can never cost less than blue blue and all you get out of the deal is six five with no evasion no protection no nothing so it's one of those cards that always fell just short yeah cryptic serpent close to being playable but not quite and maybe this is the slight push we need so when we compare this to Gurmad Angler, the first glaring weakness is the fact you need to have a lot of instant and sorceries rather than just, you know, literally fetch lands, Mishra's bubble, and grinding your way into that. However, we count with two huge advantages. First one we discussed in the last episode, which is adding words to stuff makes it better. <laughs> Making your stuff hard to interact with makes it better. Secondly, you can cast multiple of them in a single turn. So, disregarding Dan's wishes to never talk about Popper, I'm gonna talk slightly about Popper because I went to a Popper FNM yesterday, and this card is like one of the Popper Popper All Stars nowadays. Okay, I'm listening. In like in a Dimir deck, and I was playing the Dimir Mirror, and I knew my opponent had a bunch of Tenor Sedicts. 
in their hand. So that game literally went until turn like 23. So it was like my sort of game, you know, I enjoy that sort of grindy shenanigans. And my opponent says they might resolve an accumulated knowledge for four cards. I'm really talking popper in here. Once you start talking about accumulated knowledge, you just got deep into popper. I literally untap 10 cards in hand and I go, I had like 14 lands. I, will, I go like Tolarian Terror, Tolarian Terror, Tolarian Terror, Gurma Angler, Gurma Angler, Tolarian Terror for six mana. Did you win that game? <laughs> and then I held up triple counter spell. I barely won that game. Why did I win that game? Because my opponent didn't have enough. They had the edicts and they had the removal for actually five of those five fives. What they didn't have is enough mana to pay War 2 six times. War 2, that's it. So War 2, even in format like Popper, where efficiency is a lot less relevant, can matter a lot. And secondly, the fact it's amazing in multiples, because you can just hold them up and go in a single turn, something like in modern, you can do this quite consistently. Turn 4, Terror, Terror, hold up Counterspell. So tell me about the Popper deck you're playing. You mentioned that it has both Gurmag Angler and Therian Terror. So the Popper deck plays extremely similar to what I was... I played this in the League of Thieves because I was playing for color and I faced against a guy that went turn 5 to Larian Terror and I was like, I want that deck list. So I grabbed his deck list, made a few changes and ran it. The Popper deck list, it's a pretty stock one. I made it a bit more controlling, playing the full playset of Frantic Inventory rather than Accumulated Knowledge. But I don't have Frantic Inventory in paper because why would I? No one has it. <laughs> and it plays four Ogre of Olas, card hated by a, or Popper Discord, it seems. They call it a curse card. I actually went 3-1 yesterday, got second spot. Lost to the finals, two Boggles. Besides that, it was like... So the deck is four Thought Scours, two Mental Notes. Mental Note is Thought Scour, but only for you. And four Fronting Inventory, two Deep Analysis. The paralysis, four mana draw two with flashback, pay three life, and two mana, draw two cards. And four Gurmag, four Tolarian Terror, a few um, suffocating fumes, which is three mana, minus one, minus one to your opponent's creatures, and it has cycle for two. Four counter spell, four snuff out, four cast down. So proper blue-black control with a tempo angle. High reversibility, we might say, where you yeah. can just decide it's time to start winning. And deploy your 5-5s. Five I think in the third round, I had what was likely one of the best like draws I ever had in Popper, which was like, turn one, Thought Scour, Milan Accumulated Knowledge, turn two, Accumulated Knowledge, draw two, turn three, Gurma Angler, Terror, Terror. No, sorry, turn two, Thought Scour myself, Gurma Angler, Terror, turn three, Terror plus something else. Turn four, Terror plus something else. It was like, turn three, 10 power in play. So do you find that um, a deck like that is over-reliant on the graveyard? Like, A, was there a competition between Gurmag and Telerian Terror? And B, were you vulnerable to Graveyard Hate, for example? So, the first thing in Popper Graveyard Hate is particularly weak because you only have stuff like Nihil, Spellbomb, and Relic of Progenitus. You don't have, like, something like Rest in Peace. You don't have permanent Graveyard Hate, like Leyland and Rip. And that really helps in decks like that because all of a sudden they have, like, a Relic, and if you can go something like Thoughtscour on your end step, and the moment you go, okay, I'm going to cast Thoughts Cover again on my turn, they have to decide if they pop the Relic proactively or they expose themselves to the Terror. Like, not having graveyard effect that just works out is really relevant. That really helps with the deck. 
But in modern, you also have a lot better ways to get a graveyard going, right? Sadly, we don't have snuff out. <laughs> you know what? We're talking about what black needs to be decent. You need snuff out. Black needs its own solitude, namely snuff out. Hmm. So modern, you don't see a ton of rest in peace like effects. And that's encouraging because if people were playing that, the prospects would not be great for Tolarian Terror. But I think you're right that like against one-shot removal, that's fine, right? Like the opponent is the one that's put in the awkward spot trying to figure out when to fire it off. Yeah. And you just rebuild, right? You just keep playing and eventually your graveyard is full enough to recast your terror. Also, something really important is as you're playing a control deck, a lot of the time, I just won games by going turn 9, 7 mana 5-5, five, five, or like 5 mana 5-5 five, five plus counter spell. Oh god. Like, it's a much slower format. But what was really interesting is that Kurma Angler isn't particularly annoying with Terror, because with this sort of deck, you don't want to... One of the huge upsides of having Ward is how much it taxes your opponent tempo rather than their mana. So, like, playing a Terror on turn 3 and a Terror on turn 4 is a lot weaker than going turn 4 Terror Terror. Because due to the fact that they have Ward 2, it's almost impossible to deal with two Terrors on the same turn. Hmm. Because you need a lot of mana. So, the fact that you are looking to pile them up together means, like, it was pretty common to go, like, something like turn 6 Terror Terror Gurmag, rather than go, like, turn 3 Terror, turn 5 Terror, turn 6 Gurmag. You really want to, like, Go for a turn where you just pile everything together. Sort of like a lot of shadow decks, you should go like Thoughtsy Shadow Shadow rather than slowly developing them. Yeah, exactly. Now, speaking of shadow, uh, one place where we have seen Telerian Terror start to make a little bit of inroads into modern is in a deck that I think of as Grixis Death Shadow, but when you look at it very closely, there's not a Death Shadow anywhere in sight. In fact, it's not even clear what Black is doing here anymore. It's quite a sad situation. I mean, yeah, I, I think the reason Black is still on this deck is because people are not willing to admit that they have to let go. This list from SelfieSec, who once upon a time was, was the Mardu Pyromancer guy, He's moved on to other decks. I believe he's played Grixis Shadow for the last few years. In this build that he's 5-0 with a few times, he has cut the shadows entirely, replaced them straight up with Telerian Terror. So think back to what I was saying, that Gurmag Angler used to run alongside Death Shadow. Now both of them have been cut from their own deck. How embarrassing. Yeah, so this is like trying to play Shadow without Shadow, but I don't think this is the shell I would try to go for. In like future testing. I mean, if I look at it, what concessions have been made to support Telerian Terror, if any? Two Thought Scours. Two Thought Scours. That's it. And now you are going to play Considers. You're playing Dragon's Race Channelers. You're casting spells. Okay, hear me out. I have an idea. It's not a good one. It never is. Listen me out. You play Grixis Control. Okay. Okay, hear me out. You play 4 Ragavan, 4 Terror, 4 Gurma Angler, and you play, listen me out, 4 Shadow Prophecy and 4 Thought Scours. Okay, Shadow Prophecy I believe in. It's a slow card, but you have one mana threats, right? Gurmag, Tolarian Terror to come back from that. So that, that sounds good to me. And Monkey, because Monkey. Thought Scour sucks. 
So you have to sell me a little bit more on that. I just think sometimes you need really efficient ways to fill up your graveyard. And Thought Scour is super efficient. So remember when Consider was first printed and it was not clear if it was going to replace Thought Scour? Yeah. I mean, I'm also running Thought Scour and Consider, I think. I'm playing like the eight place, like the places of cantrips. Also, choose Nappy Voice. But do you think any Merc-type player has ever been like, man, I missed Thought Scour. That, that was a great card. <laughs> I think just having multi, you might not need it, but having eight spells that deal, maybe you're like forcing the limit. Okay. Well, we got to ask the question as well. Can't dance around this forever, but why not just play Merktide? Oh, damn. I have to stop us for a second. You remember last episode, we talked about someone describing tempo and we didn't get you that question. Remember for a second that they were using too many numbers? Yeah. You just got a four-page response with a Google Drive. Oh my god. <laughs> Literally. So, as a matter of respect, I don't know if we can fit this in today, but trust me, Shackhart, I'm reading this and argumenting it with you, and I'm going to mention it in next Friday's episode, out of sheer respect out of the work you have put on here. So our mailbag segment in Friday's episode... Uh, one of the questions, there were many, we didn't quite get to all of them. One of the questions was just, what is tempo? I don't even remember who posed the question, but immediately Jack Hart chimed in with not just an answer, but with some advanced mathematical equations. I'm intrigued by this uh, this essay version. And yeah, it literally transformed into a four-page essay regarding derivatives, format concepts, battlefield magic, the resources of battlefield magic, the level of resources and importance, and literally a coupling tempo to the regards of magic. Interesting read. I love our Discord. <laughs> it's amazing. Our Discord place. is great. <laughs> it's such a chaotic, random place. Amazing stuff. Yeah, so sorry. I had to put some light into that, but we can go back to why I'm not playing multi-region. The answer, Dan, is quite clear. I'm an idiot. Well, you have to choose. I mean, this is the question, right? Like, does Merktide specifically cannibalize the very instances and sorceries that Tolarian Terror needs? So, what if we play Terror and Murktide instead of Angular? And we don't play Black. We play an Iset Temporek. <sighs> yeah. I mean, this is the question, right? And we call it Iset Murktide, and then we take out Tolarian Terror and add Darcy. <laughs> ah, modern. Why has everything been done? So, I think just for science, it's worth running Telerian Terror alongside Merktide. It's worth just swapping them out for each other. And anywhere you play Merktide, you could play Terror instead. It's slightly cheaper. It doesn't fly, it doesn't end the game. That's the issue. But the fact that it doesn't cannibalize the graveyard is what intrigues me the most. Like, Terror works great with Croxa, right? Self meal, cast Terror, cast Croxa. It does, as long as you draw them in the exact order you want. But you don't draw them in that order. You just self-meal, you eventually find one terror, and then when you play the terror, you escape the Croxa. But then the game continues, and then you draw terror after you've escaped the Croxa, and you have nothing left in the graveyard. That's why I love cards like Thought Scour, right? That allow you to self-meal, and once you're mealing, you're bounding to meal stuff like not only spells, but cards that you can cannibalize with Croxa while impeding, while making terror still useful. Otherworldly gaze, this is what you're missing. We're going deep. 
we stopped playing Thought Scour, we're going into the other worldly gaze plan. We're going deep. One other deck where Telerian Terror has 5-0 in modern is is it prowess? Gosh, yeah, tempo. I mean, tempo, this is the question of the day. We keep going back to it. So what if we just play with a bunch of free spells, Mana Morphos, Mutasheri Growth, Gutshot? So actually this deck only plays one terror, but what if we like really optimize the draws of these and make like we can always cast like a turn three turn two or turn three multiple terrors and play like a full playset? No one is gonna attack your graveyard if you are playing Isset Prowess, right? You can't afford to bring rest in peace against Isset Prowess due to Tolarian Terror, right? Well you shouldn't be <laughs> you shouldn't. However, it's kind of a slower card, right, Tolarian Terror? Slow, but if my opponent goes turn forecast two five fives or even one five five plus an expressive, like if my opponent goes turn four expressive duration plus Tolarian Terror, and I have been dealing with Swiss Spears and Sprite Dragons that whole time, I'm not sure I'm winning that game. Right? Like Swiss Spear, Darcy, Sprite Dragons, Strongwing Entities demand answers. Efficient answers all that. Maybe I will try something like this with four terrors, four gadgets, four lava, four mutagenic, four metamorphos, four iteration. Super low to the ground. Same question, why not just Murktide? But I guess the answer is, well, two mana versus one is a big difference for this style of deck. Two mana versus one becomes a huge difference in here. And also, Lava Dart is not a card you want to exile yourself. Like, for example, but besides that, I don't think there's much. I think it's mostly the two mana versus one argument. And the fact this is a deck where you would rather not pay double blue, you're extremely red-based. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So that could be interesting. Also, the War 2 might be even more interesting than the Flying. Like, the 8 is, of course, better. But War 2 in this sort of deck where you're really out-tempoing your opponent rather than trying to outvalue them, is the difference between your opponent hardcasting a Solitude and just pitching a Solitude. Like, that extra 2 mana is devastating for that sort of strategy. I don't know, I will try that. That's my first plan. I want to jump to Pioneer just for one last deck. Of course. Because this one, this looks pretty sweet. A totally different style of strategy from what we typically think of as like the Pioneer decks. It's only 5 out once, but I'm keen to try this. This comes from Strangled Angles. Strangled Angles or Strangled Angles? Strangled Angles. <laughs> this is beautiful. So it's Demir Colors. A control deck that is also playing four Telerian Terrors, four Ledger Shredders. So we're somewhere between control and tempo. We have Fatal Push, we have Thoughtseize, four copies of each. We also have four Considerers and two Ops, two Blood Chiefs Thirst. So we're heavy on cantrips, heavy on one mana black interaction. What about the spice? Well, Telerian Terror by itself is not enough spice. That's just, in theory, an efficient stabilizing card it can provide your finisher you can provide your threat i would expect to see something like treasure cruise dig through time i think you need one or two cruises in here but how did they replace the cruise the cruises founding a third path more founding the third path so what do you do with founding the third path besides milling yourself what do you flash back 
Right. I mean, none of the cards that I've mentioned so far are especially valuable on the flashback. Exactly. There are, however, four copies of See the Truth, a card that we've been vexed by many times in the past. Chapter 3 of Founding the Third Breath allows you to technically, strictly speaking, you're casting See the Truth from exile and not from the graveyard, right? You're exiling it and making a copy and then casting it. So you'll get the full three cards when you do that. Yeah, as long as it's not from your hand, you're drawing three cards. Is that better than just regular-ass treasure cruise? I'm not sure, but it's sweeter. I think you want at least one or two. I think even if you're doing that spice, I think you want one cruise. Like, there's no reason not to have one. Yeah, I, I agree. Maybe it's a question of being like too vulnerable to graveyard hate, because when you have Telerian Terror, you're it's a, it's a fine line to walk. Yeah, but not only I have found this super interesting, I actually downloaded this and I might just play a link with this tonight. Like, seems really fun. Like, this is what I'm playing in Popper, but powered up with decent cards. It is very reminiscent of your Popper deck. It's like super similar. Snuff out for push. Sadly, this plays no stack interaction, replaces that with Thoughtseize, which is something I'm not particularly happy with. But there's no decent stack interaction in Pioneer. Yeah, and once you're playing Founded in Third Path and See the Truth, you're playing a lot of sorcery speed effects, so you kind of become a tap-out deck at that point. Yeah. No, no, but if you had stack interaction, then you wouldn't be playing that, I think. You would be playing much more instant speed, like leak through time and good counters. This deck is so much cheaper than the typical Demir reactive deck, right? There's no neutralize, there's no sensor in the deck. It's much more leaner than that. Yeah, but I will actually run this tonight. The one of Trader Trespassing the Cyborg hurts my brain and makes me want to cry. What do you have against Graveyard Trespasser? Card's great. A one-off in the sideboard? Graveyard Trespasser feels like a card that should be in the main deck for like it's a main deck hate for me. Like why would you say we're in Graveyard Trespasser? Like the thing with the Graveyard Trespasser is that it's incidental graveyard life gain for me, not sideboardable graveyard life gain. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, why sideboarding Graveyard Trespasser when you can sideboard in an extra hearse? Because Graveyard Trespasser can come in a lot of different matchups. It's a decent grinding card for mid-range battles. I don't know, it just feels like a main deck card rather than a sideboard card. You're going to find out. I will find out. Likely playing this exact 75 tonight. We'll see how it goes. Surprised by the two Hall of the Storm Giants. That seems a bit more controlling than the deck seems to be. But it's such a good win cause sometimes. It's really hard to deal with Total Storm Shines in Pioneer, I found out. It's pretty low cost. It's super, yeah, it's super free. That's the thing. So those are a few different places we've seen Telerian Terror in three different formats. It's the kind of card that, you know, it's not going to inspire you to like reinvent the wheel, but it's a card that you can take and try to like dust off your old Xerox strategies consider opts, anything like that. I'm sure we'll think of more throughout the week, but, uh, you know, dusty old Gurmag Angler brew and we can spruce it up with some Telerian Terrors and just see what happens. Thought Scour has not been reprinted in a while, right? Okay, no, no. No Thought Scours in my Pioneer deck. No. Such. Had to try. <laughs> Had to give it a try. But I think, I mean, the questions are like, A, how powerful is this? Is it actually worth making this your featured threat? Because these, these decks usually only have a few slots for yeah. 
this style of creature. And it's competing head-to-head with stuff like Murktide Regent, with Death Shadow, with other stuff. So yeah, it's a real question. And I think based on what we've seen so far, based on the theory of how cheap it can be, how powerful War 2 can be, it's at least worth putting Tolerian Terror through its paces. So that's going to be our task for the week. Yeah. So good luck to Terror, and we will talk about you next week. But today's spot of card from last week is for Maria Scholar of Antiquity. Yes. Maria Scholar of Antiquity, Urza at home, possibly better than Urza, I'm not sure. It's Gruul Urza, it's one green red for a 3-3 legendary elf artificer. She has two abilities, tap an untapped non-token artifact you control to add a green, or tap two untapped non-token artifacts you control, exile the top card of your library, you may play it this turn. You do have to pay the costs, but that's fine. It's fine just because how much cheaper it's to activate, right? Yeah, I speculated that we could do this multiple times a turn. In practice, uh, I never activated it more than three times in a turn. One was normal, two every once in a while. Um, So you're not going to tear through your deck with a second ability alone. At least based on what I've played so far. But it's better than not having it at all, right? Like, that's just a nice bonus ability. Yeah, I think that's not the one you're focusing the most, right? No, no. I mean, it's, it's primarily a mana engine that secondarily has a backup way to draw cards. Yeah, sometimes we consider exiling and being able to play a card as a lot weaker than drawing a card. When in a proactive deck, it's borderline the same. Like, assuming you don't have a counter spells or effects like that, it's pretty much 80% the same thing, but for some reason, psychologically, we consider it a lot worse. But if this was drawing a card, it would be insane. We just don't see it that way. At least the first activation is borderline the same. The second, when you start going down on resources, it starts to get a bit more far away than drawing a card. But still. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. So, how did testing go? In the first step in Pioneer. Yeah, so I decided to focus on Pioneer, where Maria is kind of one of a kind. We talked about the Paradox Engine combo decks, where she's seen a little bit of success, but I wanted to try slightly different combos. So I tried two versions. I tried the Song of Creation build that David sketched out, and I tried the Holebreaker Horror combo build, (laughs) the very suspicious Holebreaker Horror combo that uh, I have a little soft spot for. The idea being that Holebreaker Horror, once it's in play, allows you to play Mox Amber, bounce another Mox Amber, or bounce Oath of Nyssa, and then you just keep bouncing your own permanence with Holebreaker Horror. Then when you're done doing all that, you've got, you know, you drawn as much of your deck as you want. Then you can start pointing the bounces at your opponent's permanence if you want. So it, it, it does eventually win. It takes a while. But mm. the setup is... Yeah, actually, the setup ends up being pretty similar in a lot of these artifact decks. Uh, you don't have that many options in Pioneer. So you need Emery. You're probably going to play Springleaf Drum and Mox Amber. And at that point, you probably want Kinnon. We're going to play Maria, full four. So four of all of these. You can play some number of Moonstar prototypes and Ornithopters. I was playing three prototypes, two Ornithopters. Oath of Nyssa is there because specifically of that Hullbreaker Horror combo. But I also find that like these decks... You know, people build them with insanely low land counts, and I hate that. I, I hate that so much. I mean, I really do. <laughs> David built his with 18 lands. I was 
extremely frustrated when I was playing that deck. Like, just mulliganing one land hands all the time. We have a rule of law here in Faceless Ruin that whenever I send Dana Deglis, he just automatically has three lands and casts two one-offs. Yeah, correct. <laughs> That's just how it works. So I was playing 19 land plus four oath. And the oath, I mean, that essentially counts as land. Courier's Briefcase, four copies of that, because you can do the Courier's Briefcase and Paradox Engine combo. Like that by itself should generate infinite citizens. And then in addition to the four Hullbreaker Horrors and one Paradox Engine, I had two Reality Chips and a fun of Instrument of the Bards. Okay. Can you sell me on Instrument of the Bards? No. Okay. It's just a fun of. <laughs> okay, okay, thanks. <laughs> I <laughs> I love the honestly in the... No? Again. Just a fun of. Yeah, the theory was that it can't be that bad, right? Because it's an artifact, and Maria and Emery want artifacts. So at least it's going to do something. In some scenarios, I imagined I would get it up to two or three counters, because my important creatures cost two or three, and I could tutor for them on end step and make a treasure. Yeah, I mean, I was not sure if that would ever come up, but that was okay. it didn't come up. <laughs> it didn't come up. It's a fun fan of. It's a guy I have considered. So I was hoping it would tell me it was good so I could lie to myself. Well, what happened was I played a league and all five matchups were just straight aggro. Three mono white humans decks, one elf deck, and one mono black aggro. So all of these matchups, I just slided out the instrument because. There was never time for that. I was thinking it would be good against, you know, Rakdos, the number one deck and Pioneer, or anything that's like actually trying to like interact and like destroy my permanence. So I really built this deck to grind better than previous versions of the combo. Getting paired against five aggro decks was not ideal. So kind of disappointed in the matchup spread. Like I, I beat elves, I beat mono black, got clobbered by humans, like 020202. Specifically, the way that their creatures line up against this deck was just a, just a disaster. It's devastating to see the lose against mono white humans. Okay, expect that win two zero against the elves, win two one against mono black aggro, o two o two mono white humans, mono white humans. Just facing humans thrice in a league devastating. It's like I already learned from the first match that I'm heavily heavily <laughs> <laughs> unfavored in the matchup. And just seeing it twice, and it was just very much confirmed the next two matches. I'm tempted to just run this in a second league and try to get different matchups. Just not face Mono White three times. Or can you do something with a cyborg to try and improve that matchup? Because I see that your cyborg... Oh, you have Radiant Flame. It's not good enough. I mean, the yeah, Adeline yeah. would come down and they grow the Thalia's lieutenants super fast. Yeah, they get out of hand. And you are not in good breath colors at all. Devastating. Yeah, so apart from just not at all being able to win that matchup, I mean, the deck felt actually pretty good. Despite losing those, I was pretty happy with the plan. Maria was an important piece of the puzzle. Okay. Specifically, the interaction with Reality Chip was very, very good. So I'm pretty happy like with how those played, and I think that's something that I would always include in like in this particular shell going forward. For two reasons. One, Maria gives you mana to reconfigure. But secondly, you know, you just always know what your top card is. So if you're not sure whether to activate Maria's second ability or not, even if you haven't equipped the reality chip, you can still know like what you're gonna get off that activation. Okay. 
So hope to play again and not face Mono White. The screenshot that hurts me the most. Oh, it isn't. Oh, there's no screenshot of that. Is the description of Brutal Qatar grabbing a, a horror. That's super devastating. Super depressing. I mean, I flashed in Hullbreaker Horror on turn four, but I didn't have a follow-up play, so I just had to, like... Say go and they flip. Pass the turn, they flipped their Brutal Cathar, and then flipped it back and took my horror. That's so sad. Totally different story if I just drawn a spell that turn, but I did not, so... But anyway, I mean, that's just one game. I lost yeah. all six of the games against Mono White in different ways. Run it again and pray for no Mono White. That's how it goes. Yeah, other little tidbits was that, you know, despite losing all those matchups, Maria being a 3-3 was more relevant than I expected. Like, I have no intention to attack with Maria, but... It's a good wall. Yeah, when I paid three mana, I at least got a 3-3 body out of it. That held off some attackers in every match. I heard that happen that in modern two days ago. I was playing Taxes, and I actually did surprisingly well with. And you know the new one, the new Pablo Vitoma Rosa, the 3 mana 3 3, the Peacekeeper? Yeah, yeah. It being a 3 3 was surprisingly chunky for modern. Interesting. Like, uh, having, like having a 3 3 stuck to your body, to your effect, is surprisingly useful. And I hadn't considered that until, like, I started playing it aggressively and just. Turn 1 now with Hyrax, turn, th- turn 2, 3, 3, turn, two, turn 3, get in for 4 with Vigilance. Was something that won me too many games. The era of the 3 3 has begun. <laughs> yeah, and someone commented that on a tweet today, like semi ironically, but for some reason, 3 3s are great stats nowadays. 3 mana 3 3, recommended. My god. Graveyard Trespasser, I'm telling Graveyard you. Graveyard Trespasser. <laughs> Trendsetter, fashion maker. So the other deck that I tested was the Song of Creation deck, and a lot of the cards are the same. Like you have Maria, Kinnon, Drum, Amber, some Ornithopters. I added two Reality Chips because I felt like that was an important card, and yeah, that turned out to be quite important in the games that I played. However, the difference is that David wants to win with instead of Hullbreaker Horror, he wants to try Song of Creation, and we talked about. Uh, last week, how Maria can, in theory, support any big draw effect, whether that's Mystic Forge, whether that's Paradoxical Outcome, whether that's Paradox okay. Engine, etc., etc., etc. So why not give Song of Creation a chance? Well, it turns out the reason you should not give Song of Creation a chance is because it's a trap. It's, it's just a total trap. It's a trap? It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap! It forces you to put all these super weak cards in the deck. So it's not just Song. It's the four songs plus a bunch of Tormod's Crypt and Stonecoil Serpents and just total blanks. And then you need to win the game, so you need two Thessus Oracles. So you have a lot of air in a deck that was already pretty airy to begin with. Do you need two Thessus Oracles? Well, I lost the game because both of them died. So oh, okay, okay. You so might need okay. three Thessus Oracles. <laughs> I thought it was maybe you were afraid of them being on the bottom of your deck, but no, no, it's because... Well, Emery mills them, and sometimes you just like start going off, and it's non-deterministic, so you, you might run out of mana mid-combo, which happened. Okay. <laughs> and then I just had to discard my hand. And it kind of passed a circle. It did. Yeah, the song creation plan is just inherently suspect to begin with. You don't want to be playing this much air in the deck. Okay. And specifically, I mean, I, I have a match against Enigmatic Incarnation where <laughs> like literally every time I played Song of Creation, 
They let me discard my hand and then they killed it with Leyline Binding. This happened four times in, no, three times in two games. I'm winnable. So yeah, don't don't do this. Don't play this deck. When you play the grindy deck, you face aggro. When you play the combo deck, you face control. That's exactly how it works. Yeah, I mean, this was... I just needed to reverse the matchups or something, but even then, like this deck was not built with enough consistency like there was no way of finding the song so i think maybe we'll just shelf this one for now and focus on other other <laughs> strategies and focus on the other maria bills yeah Mar- maria was like fine here but she's she's not a miracle worker she can't rescue uh in fundamentally weak flawed pile <laughs> of cards seems like yeah i think you either focus on the vine on the song of creation or focus on the media and I would rather never touch Song of Creation in a format that's not modern. Personally, it just seems too clunky. Yeah, the infrastructure is not there. So, Speaking of modern, though, what did you find when you played Mario? So, I went ahead and built the version I was thinking of, which was like a bit more grindy, you know. It has the combo, of course, so what I was playing is 4 Ursas, 4 Medias, 4 Goblin Engineer, 2 Stoneforge Mystics. This is, of course, all the artificers in Magic, in playable in Modern. So I forgot to add Cavern of Souls, but that was my <laughs> band. And then Forest Press Sentinels, 4 Portable Hole, 4 Moonsnare Prototype, 4 Thopter Foundry, Sword of the Meek, 1 Nettlesist, 2 Stoneforge Mystic. So it was like an Ursa saga with a value plan. In the form of the, the curve of Esperance Sentinel, Stoneforge, Media, Ursa is starting to really force your opponent's hand. And as they deal with that stuff, you can focus on the combo, right? The combo being the Thopter Sword. Fourth Thopter Foundry Sword that goes infinite with both Media and Ursa. And you have Goblin Engineers to put the sword in the graveyard, or Stoneforge to put in your hand. So you have a Rule of Fate for Thopter Foundry. You have seven ways to add Sword of the Meek. So you have the four foundry and the four engineers to get it. You have the sword, the four engineers, and the two stoneforge to get it. And you have eight ways to make it go infinite in the form of four media, four ursa. So it actually was super consistent. I did, however, first round I got a swift 2-0. I think I was playing against something like Sue. They weren't able to interact efficiently and I just crushed them. Round two, I crushed... I, I don't remember... I... What was I playing? I don't remember my opponent on round 2, I got a 2-1. Round 3, I got a sad 1-2. I win game 1, I move on to like 4 on game 2, and on game 3, I lose because they lay lane binding my sword of the meek. And I only playing 1, and I had no way of getting it back. So I just look there with my Thopter Foundry, my Ursa in hand, my opponent tapped out, and me trying to outgrind that game and was never able because my sword got removed. Who could have foreseen this <laughs> leyline binding? I lied to my own hubris. <laughs> and finally, round five, it was my opponent playing a Sodius, super slow, super, super slow. Like, I literally won game one, and game two, we barely got to play, like, three turns before the timeout. So, a not particularly exciting 3-2. Hmm. But the deck performed. I do think I won, like, three Cavern of Souls. And I actually really like like the curve of Esper Sentinel, Goblin Engineer, Media Ursa, because you're playing like a must remove every single turn, right? 
Most of our prototype and portable code works super well with media and Ursa while being pretty decent with Engineer. Deck felt nice. Stoneforge Mystic Nettlesist was a bit off. It never did particularly much. Maybe it's just removing a Stoneforge for a second sword or something like that. So was Maria actually a must kill or not really? Maria was always a, ma a must kill, yeah. Mostly because of the threat of just throwing me cards. It's pretty annoying in modern to let someone think they Like, look at the curve of this deck. Unless you're hitting specifically Ursa or Second Media, whenever you activate, it's pretty likely you're going to be able to cast whatever you hit, right? If you have mana available, yeah. You just need one or two mana. One of my concerns is that Maria only adds green mana, and green mana doesn't really cast that much in your deck. I mean, you're mostly using it for cheapening Ursa, Nettlesist, or just trying to go off with Thunder Foundry. Another good use, a little, more, a little more hidden, is casting stuff and then activating Ursa Saga at the same turn. Okay, I like that. Allowing you to activate Ursa Saga is like casting an additional spell, right? If I can go turn 2 Ursa Saga, turn 3 Media, and activate Ursa Saga, that's pretty huge, right? My Ursa Saga all of a sudden, being able to both on turn 3 play my Media and get my Construct. I mean, were you able to do that or not? I was able to do that, like, I was able to do that at least, like, twice. Like, turn 1 Esper Sentinel, turn 2 Prototype, plus something like Pithing Needle, or like a Spell Bomb, or, or like, turn 1 Prototype, turn 2 Sword of the Meek, into turn 3 Media plus Ursa Saga was something that happened consistently. Because you have a lot of 1-mana artifacts that just stick to the board, right? Like, if you're going to place, like, an Abundant Growth, or a, new, or a Dork, or a Ragavan, you just portable hole it... Now, portable call is going to be there for 80% of the game in most cases. Just tapping for green with media. Or with Ursa tapping for blue. Alright, my last question about this deck is what happened to the Howling Mines? I was promised Howling Mines. I was. So, I wanted to add it, but I was like, if I add Howling Mine, I'm adding Yorion. Because I don't have slots. That doesn't mean anything. I don't have slots! And I'm <laughs> not willing no to. Sense. I'm not willing to play, like, a curving threats deck without Esper Sentinel. Okay, so everything else here is more important than Howling Mine, basically. I think having access to... I, I did like the suite of 12 good one-drops that they were not like Ursa Saga tutors, but, but likely like good one-drops. Monster Prototype Portable Hole Esper Sentinel. They play like a super good role in being able to actually develop your game on turn one. The Solga Lantern, I only use it once. And I didn't love the sideboard. Like I took the sideboard from the from the 5-0. And the pissing needle and Solga Lantern as a two like one in the sideboard, one in the main felt really stupid. Like, I don't know when I will need two pissing needles, right? Feels like super specific, but I don't know. Besides that, deck work. The splash for just media was weird. That's exactly why I wanna try Cavern of Souls. Because Cavern of Souls casts as many crit cards in this deck as Stomping Ground does. Literally. But it doesn't cast Portable Hole, doesn't cast Moonster Prototype, doesn't... No, no, I said that Stomping Ground does. For example. Yeah, but you only are playing one Stomping Ground. Yeah, but you can take out that Stomping Ground, take out something like that Temple Garden for two caverns. And one fetch land, and just play three caverns, and most likely it's gonna work. Like, the hardest cast card you cast in your deck is Media, and the Cavern of Souls help with that and Ursa, which are like the most man-intensive cards besides Thopter Foundry. And it's pretty unlikely you play Thunder Foundry on turn 2, right? Like, it's not something common. 
looking at your list more closely, I don't think stomping ground is the right land anyway, right? Like you don't want the red green land to splash a red green card. Yeah, yeah, stomping ground. I have no idea when you would want that red green land. I think the player that made the mana base was like just add one green of like one of every green one, one double garden, one stomping, one breeding, and hope it's enough. Like it should specifically not be a red green because you need exactly. one land to tap for red, one a different land to tap for green. They just went for one of each, right? One breeding, one stomping, one temple. Mm. But yeah, stomping ground is the worst by a mile. It casts literally nothing and it doesn't even help for Thopter Foundry. So yeah, like a Karnasaurus is almost strictly better in there. So that's some of the changes I'm considering if I ever run it again. All right, so what have we learned so far about Maria? It's a trap with Song of Creation. Yes. It's pretty decent in modern as baby Ursa, because I can't play eight Ursas, but I would if I could. And maybe there's some decks to the media combo in Pioneer as long as we can fa- as long as we can dodge Mono White. It seems like a promising engine card. The mana ability is quite powerful. The interaction with Reality Chip is cute. The card draw is not as easy to pull off as I expected, but you know, it was useful, nevertheless. And yeah, I mean, I think that there's, even if the tools are not perfect yet, I think that we'll be getting more tools in Pioneer. Every set, potentially. You know, Brothers War is just around the corner. So this is a card to keep your eye on. And yeah, I think that the future is bright for Maria. And let's hope so. The mana cost, as we have seen, tends to be like the biggest problem with it. Like in your Pioneer deck, it's your only card with red in the main deck. Definitely a card you have to splash for right now, but I mean, we'll see. Maybe that will change over time. Maybe Gruel Artifacts will be the, the, all the rage. In MTG Bro? MTG Bra. Maybe MTG Bro gives us what we need. MTG Bra. <laughs> gives us exactly what we need. All right. Well, let's leave it there for now. Yes. And see what the MTG Bro brings. <laughs> oh, before we leave, tiny, tiny piece of detail. The Challenger decks have come out, and the Pioneer Phoenix one has two expressive iterations. <laughs> and two Arclight Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. But two expressive iterations is the worst. They actually printed a man card. They've done that before. They have done that before. And the ruling they have given was that card is legal as long as you're playing those exact 75. Yep. <laughs> so let's see if they do it again. Have a nice night, everybody. Bye-bye. Decklists for this episode can be viewed at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And don't forget to follow us in your podcast app to hear new episodes as soon as they drop. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you're a fan of the show, you can join our community at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.